Acids turn litmus paper red, and bases turn litmus paper blue. If you need help with acid-base problems, this podcast is for you. Today, our patient has an acid-base disorder, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, Down to the Basics, an Approach to Acid-Based Disorders. Now, this podcast is going to be a bit different. The first part of the podcast will focus on the background physiology, while the second part will outline the steps you should take to approach any acid-based problem to determine the etiology of different acid-based disorders. We suggest you look at the associated infographic while listening to this podcast, as it will help to visualize the steps and equations. All right, time for a minute physiology. The body has strict mechanisms to maintain acid-base homeostasis within a pH range of 7.35 to 7.45. When the pH is out of this range, it can cause proteins to denature and can result in a variety of symptoms, including nausea and vomiting, tremors, confusion, and in severe cases, a coma. The pH tells us how acidic or basic a solution is. pH stands for potential hydrogen, as it represents the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. It is calculated by taking the negative log of the hydrogen ion concentration. Since pH is on a log scale, Increasing the pH by 1 means multiplying the hydrogen ion concentration by 10. The Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, which is used to calculate hydrogen ion concentration, includes the ratio of the concentration of PCO2 over the concentration of bicarbonate. Therefore, the hydrogen ion concentration is determined by the ratio between the concentration of PCO2 and bicarbonate. These are therefore two key components to look at when determining the acid-base disturbance. An imbalance between the concentrations of PCO2 and bicarb will lead to an inappropriately high or low hydrogen ion concentration, which will then be reflected by an inappropriately high or low pH. Now the main determinant of the concentration of PCO2 is the respiratory system. PCO2 is a volatile acid, meaning that it evaporates easily at normal temperature. It is breathed out by the body in exchange for oxygen when it is breathed in. Respiration is therefore the way that the body deals with volatile acids. CO2 is a reflection of ventilation. If there is a disease affecting the lungs, it may hinder the body's ability to regulate CO2, which would then consequently affect the body's ability to maintain a normal acid load. The main determinant of bicarbonate is the renal system. Kidneys are able to adjust hydrogen ion and bicarbonate excretion to compensate for changes in acid-base load. For example, if someone has a respiratory problem where their lungs cannot compensate for the extra CO2, the kidneys may hold on to more bicarbonate. Control of bicarbonate by the kidneys is a slow process. It may take up to five to six days for compensation versus a respiratory system that works much faster and can compensate in up to 12 to 24 hours. Apart from the about 15,000 millimoles of volatile acids like CO2, the body also gets a daily non-volatile acid load that cannot be breathed off. This consists of about 60 to 70 millimoles of proteins we eat, such as phosphoric acid and sulfuric acid. There are two ways that the body maintains homeostasis of these non-volatile acids, which are bicarbonate reabsorption and buffers. 
The proximal tubule reabsorbs 70 to 80% of the 4,500 millimoles of filtered bicarbonate, and the rest of the nephron absorbs 10 to 15%, which helps balance the excess acid. The acids can also be buffered as they travel in the body. Any substance that can reversibly bind to hydrogen ion is called a buffer. Buffers do not eliminate hydrogen ions from the body. Rather, they keep them occupied, for instance, in order to avoid rapid and significant changes in pH. The major extracellular buffer of hydrogen ion in the blood is bicarbonate, while the major intracellular buffers are phosphate and proteins. Hydrogen ions are buffered in the urine by ammonium and hydrogen phosphate before being permanently eliminated as it leaves the body. In doing so, a new bicarbonate is created that is filtered in the blood. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. The first step in approaching any acid-base problem is to determine whether acidemia or alkalemia is present. If the pH is low, meaning there is a high hydrogen ion concentration, it signifies acidosis as the primary process. If the pH is high, meaning there is a low hydrogen ion concentration, it signifies alkalosis as the primary process. The second step is to determine whether the problem is respiratory or metabolic in origin. As previously mentioned, the lungs and kidneys are the two main regulators of acid-base balance. In order to determine where the problem is coming from, determine whether the bicarbonate and pH are changing in the same or opposite direction. If the pH and bicarbonate levels change in the same direction, meaning the pH and the bicarbonate are low, or the pH and bicarbonate are high, it signifies that the problem is metabolic in origin. If the pH and bicarbonate change in opposite directions, meaning the pH is low but the bicarbonate is high, or vice versa, it signifies that the problem is respiratory in origin. For instance, take the case of a patient with a pH of 7.2, bicarbonate of 12, and CO2 of 24. First, the pH is below 7.4, which signifies acidemia, and therefore acidosis is a primary process. Second, the pH is low and the bicarb is low, meaning that the problem is metabolic in origin. The pH is low because there is a lack of bicarb, not because there is an excess of CO2. The primary driver here is therefore the low bicarb, which is a kidney problem. After determining the primary disturbance, the third step is to assess the compensatory response. When there is a pathology in the body that results in an acid-base disorder, the body will attempt to compensate for this disturbance to restore balance. When the problem is metabolic in nature and the bicarb is inappropriately elevated or reduced, the respiratory system will compensate by either increasing or decreasing respiration to get rid of or keep more CO2, depending on the problem. For example, if a patient has metabolic acidosis after having prolonged diarrhea, which results in the loss of bicarbonate in stool, the patient will increase the respiratory rate in an effort to get rid of CO2. Since the patient is losing bicarbonate, the body will try to lose acid in the form of CO2 to maintain an acid-base balance and normalize the patient's pH. There is a set renal and respiratory compensation for each acid-base disturbance. In metabolic acidosis, for every 1 milliequivalent per liter fallen bicarbonate, there is a 1.2 millimeter of mercury decrease in PCO2. Therefore, if the bicarbonate is 17, meaning there is around a 7-point drop from a normal bicarbonate level of 24, we would expect an 8.4 drop in PCO2, meaning an end value of around 31 to 32.
In metabolic alkalosis, for every one milliequivalent per liter rise in bicarbonate, there is a 0.7 millimeter of mercury decrease in PCO2. There are set amounts of compensation for respiratory disorders as well, but these are different depending on whether the problem is acute or chronic, which brings us to our next step. The fourth step in our approach is to determine if the problem is acute or chronic. Respiration can be rapidly changed to compensate for higher acid load. The kidneys can also help regulate acid load. However, they take longer to act. Therefore, the way we can tell if the response is immediate or delayed or acute or chronic is by the degree of bicarbonate change. It will take longer to see a significant change in bicarbonate since the kidneys are slower to act. As mentioned in the last step, the amount of compensation expected depends on the acuity of the problem. In respiratory acidosis, for example, when a patient is hypoventilating and their CO2 rises, for every 10 millimeter of mercury rise in PCO2, the bicarbonate will increase by one milliequivalent acutely. However, if the patient has a chronic respiratory acidosis and the kidneys have had time to act, the bicarbonate is then expected to increase by three to four milliequivalents for every 10 millimeter of mercury rise in PCO2. The fifth and final step in our approach is to calculate the anion gap. Anions and cations are balanced in the body to maintain electrochemical equilibrium. The main cation in the serum is sodium, whose usual concentration is 140 milliequivalents. The main ions in the serum are bicarbonate and chloride, whose concentrations are about 25 and 105 milliequivalents respectively. There are also about 10 milliequivalents of unmeasured anions in the serum, such as albumin, so that the overall balance is about 140 milliequivalents of anions, which matches the 140 milliequivalent concentration of the cation sodium. The anion gap represents the unmeasured anions in the serum, which is calculated by the difference between the sodium concentration and the sum of the bicarbonate and chloride concentrations. Considering that the largest unmeasured anion is albumin, hypo or hyperalbuminemia must be corrected for. For every 10 gram per liter decrease in albumin from the normal value, the anion gap should be increased by 2.5, since albumin does not account for this anion gap. If the sodium and chloride concentrations are normal, but the bicarbonate level is low, this represents an anion gap metabolic acidosis. There are a variety of possible anions that could be present due to either accumulation of endogenous acids such as lactic acid or ketones, or due to the metabolism of ingested substances such as methanol or salicylates. These are some components of the mud piles acronym that is a common acronym that can be used to remember the etiologies of unmeasured anions in the serum in patients with an anion gap metabolic acidosis. It is important to note that there is variability in anion gap and the patient's baseline anion gap should be used for comparison when available to see the degree and severity of the metabolic derangement. Non-anion gap metabolic acidosis occurs when the bicarbonate level is low, but there are no significant unmeasured anions. This usually occurs in the setting of hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, in which the anion gap is normal, but the other main anion, apart from bicarbonate, chloride, is elevated as it is displaced to the extracellular space to maintain electrical chemical balance. The delta ratio, or delta-delta, can be calculated in anion gap metabolic acidosis to determine if there are no concurrent metabolic acid-base disorders present. It is calculated by the increase in the anion gap above baseline over the decrease in bicarbonate below baseline. 
If there is a pure anion gap metabolic acidosis, the ratio should be 1 to 2 because the anion gap and bicarbonate change together, meaning that for every one increase in the anion gap, there should be a one decrease in the bicarbonate level. If the ratio is greater than two, it indicates that the increase in anion gap is greater than the decrease in bicarbonate. So there must be a concurrent metabolic alkalosis contributing to the increased bicarbonate. If the ratio is less than one, it indicates that the decrease in bicarbonate is greater than the increase in the anion gap. So there must be a concurrent non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. The basic steps to follow for any acid-base disorder have been outlined. However, this process can be more challenging when there is more than one type of acid-base disturbance occurring at the same time. This is called a mixed disorder. There are two clues that can suggest a mixed disorder. First, if the pH is normal or extreme in either direction, for instance, less than 7.2 or greater than 7.6. If the pH is normal and the bicarbonate and CO2 values are not, it suggests that the pH is balanced because there are two underlying processes, an acidosis and an alkalosis, that change the pH equally in opposite directions. The second clue is if the PCO2 and bicarb move in opposite directions. Normally, they move in the same direction as one compensates for the other. For example, if the bicarbonate is low, you would expect the PCO2 to be lower because you have less buffer available to compensate for the acid. However, if they move in opposite directions, it may be because there are two processes occurring at the same time. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the internet work entitled Down to the Basics and Approach to Acid-Based Disorders. This episode was written by Dr. Caroline Nadger, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Bernard Unikovsky, nephrologist, and Dr. Jesse Popov, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The internet work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leia Karanopoulos, and Zara Morali. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.